Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters. You might have noticed that there was only one Mike in that intro, and as you probably listened to a few weeks ago, I'm going to be doing an episode by myself. Uh, the one a few weeks ago was the other Mike, and yes, he is the other Mike. Uh, the other Mike was covering why he is an old earth creationist. And now my kind of counterpoint episode, I won't quite say rebuttal, but my counterpoint is why I am a young earth creationist. Um, and it'll mostly be why I'm a young earth creationist with a little bit of why I'm not an old earth creationist. Uh, primarily, this is supposed to be a positive case for what I do believe and not argumentative against what I don't believe. But there are some times where I think highlighting the contrast is beneficial. Okay, so um, in spite of the overwhelming scientific evidence that we have, why am I a young earth creationist? Well, point number one is that, in my opinion, the Bible says so. And I'm done. That's about it. Not really. I am just kidding. Um, it's not quite it. But to be honest, my position does hinge quite heavily or rely quite heavily on uh, the biblical exegesis. Um, I want to make it clear now, and I'll probably reiterate this later, but I am not arguing against scientific observations that are made. I'm not arguing that the universe is smaller than scientists say that it is. Uh, I'm not arguing that the rocks don't exist the way the scientists say they exist. I'm not arguing that light doesn't travel at a current light speed. Um, what I am arguing is against some of the conclusions that are drawn from the evidence. And we, we always have to remember in science that there, there's one thing in the gathering of evidence, and then there's another step in the drawing of conclusions. And my contention is that the conclusions that are drawn, that the earth is some number of billions of years old, and the universe is some larger number of billions of years old, I believe those conclusions are false. I think the latest I've seen is that the Earth is somewhere around 4 billion and the universe is about 14. Um, I think that we actually have a much clearer word from God than that. And I'll seek to make my case. As I said, it's primarily scriptural. Um, First of all, I'll go to the scriptures. Second of all, I'll go to church history. And then lastly, I will delve a little bit into science. Um, I have to say, though, that the, the science is not my strongest points in this argument. I do believe the science supports my conclusions, but I think there's science and interpretation and evidence that basically anybody can uh, marshal to their defense. And so I would say in light of that apparent confusion, um, I, I would say that scripture is an infallible and trustworthy source for us to know and decide these matters. Now, one other word before I get started on why I'm a young earth creationist. Um, I don't find this to be a cardinal doctrine. 
Um, if you've been part of Theology Matters, the Facebook group, um, you might have heard of or seen the uh, McAvoy Heresy Scale, I think it was called one time. Um, I, I stated something that I've heard commonly taught, so I cannot at all claim it to be original to me, but I've heard it commonly taught, uh, and I think it was Sparky who had never heard it described quite this way before, so he gave it uh, a trademark with my name on it. But basically the idea is that there's three levels of doctrinal difference uh, or three importances or it, the terminology can be a little bit vague, but maybe if I explain it, it'll become a little bit clearer. Primary doctrines are ones that if you disagree with me, I will label you a heretic and say that you are not in the kingdom of God. Now, understand that in all of this, my interpretation might be flawed. And of course, I'm not saying that my interpretation of doctrines is the final arbiter. God is always the final arbiter, but he's given us very clear revelation in his scripture. So for instance, if you deny that Jesus is part of the Godhead, if you deny the deity of Christ, that violates a principal doctrine. And I would say you cannot exist in the same religion with me. Um, I would say the Trinity is in there. Monotheism is in there. And there, there are these core doctrines, um, the wrath of God against sin, things, things that if you knowingly deny the truth as laid out in Scripture, you cannot have a claim on Christ as your Savior. Those are primary doctrines. Secondary doctrines are those that I believe do not put you outside of the faith, but do most of the time put you outside of being able to coexist with me peaceably in a local church body. Now, that may sound weird to some of you, so let me give an example. I am a credo Baptist. I believe in believer's baptism. That is, I believe that the church should only baptize those who can give a credible profession of faith. That conflicts with a classical Reformed position and the Roman Catholic position of paedo-baptism, which is different between the two. We'll go with the Reformed, kind of the Presbyterian stripe, which is that baptism is for believers and children of believers. So they baptize what they call covenant children. I don't believe that this is a doctrine that damns somebody to hell. I don't believe it is an idea that puts them outside of the realm of the atonement of Christ. I do believe it's mistaken, and I also believe that having credo-baptists and paedo-baptists in the same congregation will necessarily lead to wounded consciences at best, if not hostility, and even worse at worst. So that's what I would call a secondary doctrine. Primary, you're not a believer. Secondary, we cannot peaceably coexist in the same local congregation. Tertiary or third level doctrine is one where we can disagree on an issue and still exist within the same local congregation. Now, sometimes, depending on how these doctrines are held, some may go in the second category, some may go in the third category. At our church, eschatology is a tertiary doctrine. It's officially part of our statement of faith that our church is a premillennial dispensational church. 
I am not a premillennial dispensationalist. So, or a dispensational premillennialist. So, how can I be part of that church? Well, I've discussed it with the elders. They know my position. I've substantiated my position exegetically from Scripture. They won't let me teach in contradiction to their statement of faith, but they believe that my position is sufficiently orthodox that it's just not a big deal. Therefore, the other Mike and I disagree in this area. Uh, I agree with a couple of the elders in this area, and a couple of them I strongly disagree with. But again, it's not a doctrine that divides whether you're a believer or not. And in the case of our church that doesn't hobby horse it, it's not a doctrine that ends up making it so that we cannot fellowship together. All right. So that big background, I just I wanted to give that big background in order to lead up to this. The age of the earth to me is a tertiary doctrine. The other Mike and I are part of the same local congregation. In fact, he's one of my elders. In fact, he's probably my personal elder in that he is the elder with whom I have the closest friendship, communication, that type of thing. So the fact that we disagree on this, do we have some arguments about it? Yeah. I mean, we're good friends. This is a difference. So it's something that we argue about a good bit. I think that's just natural and close relationships. But it doesn't cause a real rift. It doesn't cause a real problem. We are totally able to fellowship together one with another. Uh, I do strongly disagree with him on this, but I also, it's not a red-hot critical issue. So I can think he's really wrong on something that's relatively unimportant, and it doesn't break up our overall unity and fellowship within Christ. So just wanted to give that. I realize that I'm a I'm about 10 minutes in and haven't even really started, but we get so worked up these days on issues that I think sometimes aren't really the core issue. What's the core issue here? Well, the core issue here is he's an OEC and I'm a YEC, but we're both C's. What I mean by that is he and I both believe that God had an active hand in creating the universe. I'd like to see him come over to my position and see God as more directly involved, as Scripture says, on a shorter time scale. But he believes the important parts, which is that God is the actual creator of the universe. And he disbelieves the right parts, too, in that he doesn't believe in evolution. So on those foundational principles, those things that might be edging into the primary category, he and I actually agree. The actual age of the earth is very, very tertiary, in my opinion. Okay, so here we go. Why am I a young earth creationist? Well, the Bible says so. I firmly actually um, believe that, and in order to substantiate that, I'm going to read some quotes that I've got here. The first quote comes from a book called Better Than the Beginning by Richard Barcelos. This is actually, though, a quote where he is quoting a man named Robert Raymond out of his book, A New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith. I don't have that book, or else I would have quoted directly from it. And the quote reads as this, The word day, or yom, in the singular, dual, and plural, occurs some 2,225 times in the Old Testament, with the overwhelming preponderance of these occurrences designated the ordinary daily cycle. Normally, the preponderant meaning of a term should be maintained unless contextual considerations force one to another view. I agree with that. 
if you listened to the other Mike's explanation, he talks about the four different meanings of the word yom. And while I don't dispute that yom can mean that, the overwhelming majority of the time, it simply means a day, as in a 24-hour period. And I disagree with the other Mike. I don't see any reason in Genesis 1 to take it as anything other than its normal meaning. And there are other reasons for that as well, and we'll see that as we go. Um, I've got another quote here from Douglas Kelly, Creation and Change. This comes from page 107. The Bible generally employs the word day, yom in Hebrew, to signify either a 24-hour solar day or the daylight portion of those hours. When modified by a number or ordinal, as in day one or day two, its universal scriptural usage means normal solar day. There's a footnote there. The apparent exception to this universal usage pointed out by Dr. Hugh Ross in Creation and Time, Nav Press, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 1994, of Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, quote, After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, is not a clear exception. Since it is not absolutely certain what the prophecy means, does it refer to the restoration of Israel to the land? Does it refer to the resurrection of Christ and thus that of his people in him? We are in no position clearly to deny a sequence of three normal days. At very least, such a reference is far too weak to disestablish the universal scriptural usage of ordinals connected with days, meaning ordinary solar days. All right, let me break that down. What does that mean? Basically, the argument goes like this. In Genesis chapter 1, you have day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, day 7. And the argument is, elsewhere in the Old Testament, every single time that the word yom, or day, is used with an ordinal, first, second, third, and so forth, or 1, 2, 3, 4, it means a literal 24-hour day. It does not mean the other usages that Mike mentioned last time, which I agree that it can, but when it's modified by that ordinal number, it does not. Opponents to this will argue that in Hosea 6.2, you have a prophecy where you have second day and third day, but they're figurative in usage. I, If that's true, it is the singular exception, and I know the other Mike's going to hate this, but it's the exception that proves the rule, or... I would say that Hosea 6.2 is actually a prophecy looking forward to the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, even though it might have also referred to Israel allegorically or metaphorically, it literally refers to a three-day period between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ and thus maintains the literal 24-hour period of second day and third day. Okay. This next one is a quote from Henry Morris. It's a little bit extended, but I think it's very, very good. Uh, this is from the Genesis record, and I'm reading from pages 55 and 56. It reads, When light appeared, God divided the light from the darkness. Darkness was not removed completely, so far as the earth was concerned, but only separated from the light. Furthermore, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. As though in anticipation of future misunderstanding, God carefully defined his terms. The very first time he used the word day, Hebrew yom, 
He defined it as the light, to distinguish it from the darkness called night. Having separated the day and night, God had completed his first day's work. The evening and the morning were the first day. This same formula is used at the conclusion of each of the six days. So it is obvious that the duration of each of the days, including the first, was the same. Furthermore, the day was the light time when God did his work. The darkness was the night time when God did no work. Nothing new took place between the evening and morning of each day. The formula may be rendered literally, and there was evening, then morning, day one, and so on. It is clear that, beginning with the first day and continuing thereafter, there was established a cyclical succession of days and nights, periods of light and periods of darkness. Such a cyclical light-dark arrangement clearly means that the earth was now rotating on its axis and that there was a source of light on one side of the earth corresponding to the sun, even though the sun was not yet made, Genesis 1.16. It is equally clear that the length of such days could only have been that of a normal solar day. It should be noted that in the Hebrew Old Testament, yom, without exception, never means period. It normally means either a day, in the 24-hour sense, or else the daylight portion of the 24 hours, day as distinct from night. It may occasionally be used in the sense of indefinite time, for example, in the time of the judges, but never as a definite period of time with a specific beginning and ending. Furthermore, it is not used even in this indefinite sense except when the context clearly indicates that the literal meaning is not intended. In the first chapter of Genesis, the termination of each day's work is noted by the formula, and the evening and the morning were the first or second, etc., day. Thus, each day had distinct boundaries and was one in a series of days, both of which criteria are never present in the Old Testament writings unless literal days are intended. The writer of Genesis was trying to guard in every way possible against any of his readers deriving the notion of non-literal days from his record. Now, for me, that pretty well accords with the way that I read Scripture. Uh, I think that without modern scientific advances, uh, just a reading of the Scripture on its own would yield thoughts very much like that. But we've been in Genesis. We've kind of talked about the word yom in Genesis 1 and how is it used and that sort of thing. Honestly, though, that's not the linchpin of my argument. I think it's very important, and I do agree with everything that's been said thus far. But actually, the linchpin of my argument comes from Exodus chapter 20. That seems odd, I'm sure, unless you've researched on this before, why would I go to the giving of the Ten Commandments in order to substantiate my position on the age of the earth? Well, because I believe that God in Exodus 20, through the same author who penned Genesis 1, Moses, gives a commentary, a divine commentary, an infallible commentary, on exactly what was meant in Genesis chapter 1. Here, I'm going to be reading from Better Than the Beginning by Richard Barcelos. And again, we have an extended quotation, but it covers several different points. And I think, as Richard Barcelos argues, the, the sum of these points, their cumulative argument, is really irrefutable. So Exodus 20 in the Days of Creation. 
Moses, the author of both Genesis and Exodus, alludes to the six days of creation as well as the seventh day, the Sabbath day at creation. Exodus 28 through 11, we read, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is an important biblical text because it provides a divine commentary on the days of creation. Raymond comments, Allowing the Bible to look back and comment on the days of creation, the, quote, ordinary day view has most to commend it since Moses grounds the commandment regarding seventh-day Sabbath observance in the fact of the divine exemplar's activity. Quote, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sam Waldron provides these helpful comments on Exodus 20. Jehovah insists that he made everything in exactly six days. This is a simple statement of historical fact. Further, if the seven-day structure of the creation week is mere literary framework, why does Jehovah himself attribute such significance to it? A related problem is that Jehovah identifies the seventh day of creation as a Sabbath day. The second part of verse 11 is a quotation or paraphrase and thus an interpretation of Genesis 2-3. The point of intense interest is that Exodus 20 verse 11, in it Jehovah calls the seventh day of creation, quote, a Sabbath day. The meaning of, quote, Sabbath day in Exodus 20 verse 11 may not be disputed. The Sabbath day in this passage is a literal day. It means every recurring literal seventh day of every week. That quote is from Sam Waldron, a modern exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. The Plural Use of Days in the Old Testament In the 608 occurrences of the plural days, yamim, in the Old Testament, see Exodus 20 verse 11, their reference are always ordinary days. Ages are never expressed by the word yamim. That quote comes from Raymond, A New Systematic Theology. In Exodus 20, verse 11, Moses wrote, For in six days, note the plural use, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. The lack of age terminology. Finally, had Moses intended to express the idea of seven ages in Genesis 1, he could have employed the term olam, which means age or period of indeterminate duration. Taken together, the picture is clear. The triune God created the sun-tilted heavens and the earth for his own glory in the space of six ordinary 24-hour days. And here, sun-tilted is S-O-N. The point of the book, better than the beginning, is to show how all of creation is tilted toward Christ so that its consummation and culmination in the new heavens and the new earth is also all about Christ. Okay, so I, I believe that these authors are correct. I believe that the plain reading of Scripture, God's own interpretation of it, um, it, it just a literal reading of it 
tells me that I disagree with the other mic, that the verbs that are used indicate some ongoing action, or that in the narrative text itself, we have a whole lot of extra time, or at least hints of extra time that are in place. Um, I just don't think that's the case. There are arguments that Genesis 1 through 11 are a little more metaphorical or allegorical or mythical. I don't see anything that transitions from Genesis 11 to 12 to show that we're going from kind of myth over into allegory. Um, I don't see anything in the timelines that stands out as being aberrant. Um, everything in Genesis 1 through 11 screams history to me just as much as everything from 12 through 50 does. And just as much as Exodus through Malachi does in the historical narrative passages. Uh, I believe Genesis took a literal interpretation. I'm sorry. I believe Jesus took a literal interpretation of the Old Testament. Um, I believe, I don't remember what book it was. I think it was in this Creation and Change book by Douglas Kelly, where it says that Jesus cites from every one of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then every time he cites from it, um, he treats it as if it's literal history. Um, so all of these to me just add up to this is the way the biblical author Moses intended for us to read it. You know, I think Mike made the point last time that a verse can never mean what it never meant. Meaning, and he confessed this, that if Moses meant 24-hour days, then, his, then the other Mike's position is mistaken. And I would argue that based on Genesis 1, based on the rest of the use of the Yam and Yamim in the Old Testament, based on Exodus 20, we get a clear picture of what Moses meant, what he understood, and what he was trying to convey to us. My second point is, um, you know, what, what have good men throughout the ages believed about this issue? And certainly, there's not a monolithic interpretation. Even some of the men I'm going to cite um, would not be in complete agreement with me on the way things work. Um, that said, I've also heard people say that the six-day young earth creation view is something that was made up by uh, a woman in the 19th century with the Seventh-day Adventist. I think her name is Ellen White. That may not be correct, but um, I I've had people actually say that to me. And at the time, I was like, oh, gosh, that does seem concerning. Well, since then, I've gone and researched it, and that's absolutely 100% completely wrong. So let me substantiate that. Um, not a church father, but an important figure in church history, so to speak. We have Josephus, and according to an article that I read, he used the Septuagint um, dating. I think the Septuagint has larger ages for some of the patriarchs early on in Genesis. And so he took them as literal and backdated from his current time and came up with a date of creation of 5,555 BC. Kind of a cool roundish number. Um, <clears throat> Ambrose believed in six 24-hour days. And I've got some quotes from him that I'd like to read, theoretically, if I marked them. Well, we may have to come back to Ambrose. 
Okay. Um, well, Ambrose, his most famous pupil probably was Augustine. Um, now, Augustine is one with whom I would probably not agree in every point. However, it does appear that Augustine believed in a young earth and potentially maybe six 24-hour days. Uh, some people would argue that he believed in instantaneous creation. And a quote that I'm going to read kind of sounds like that. But I I'm uncertain at this point whether he's speaking of Genesis 1-1 as being instantaneous and then having a creation week, or whether he actually believed that the week that's described in Genesis was instantaneous and God is then using metaphor or allegory to explain what he did. Uh, in any case, here are the quotes that support a young age from him. This is from The City of God, Book 12, Chapter 10. They are deceived, too, by those highly mendacious documents which profess to give the history of many thousand years, though reckoning by the sacred writings, we find that not six thousand years have yet passed. And the footnote here says, Augustine here follows the chronology of Eusebius, who reckons 5,611 years from the creation to the taking of Rome by the Goths, adopting the Septuagint version of the patriarchal ages. Okay. And then just a little bit later, it's the next page in chapter 12. So again, City of God, uh, book 12, chapter 12. The title that's given, which is not original, is How These Persons Are to Be Answered Who Find Fault with the Creation of Man on the Score of Its Recent Date. Here's Augustine's words. As to those who are always asking why man was not created during these countless ages of the infinitely extended past and came into being so lately that, according to Scripture, less than 6,000 years have elapsed since he began to be, I would reply to them regarding the creation of man, just as I replied regarding the origin of the world to those who will not believe that it is not eternal, but had a beginning, which even Plato himself most plainly declares, though some think his statement was not consistent with his real opinion. So, there we go. Um, less than 6,000 years, twice by Augustine. Uh, I don't have a quote from this one, but the Venerable Bede, who was, I believe, in the 500s, maybe the 600s, uh, placed creation, uh, again, using a similar method to Josephus, but I guess counting differently using the Masoretic text rather than the Septuagint renderings. Um, he placed creation at 3,952 B.C. Um, let's see. Basil of Caesarea who was in the 4th century. This is from his homily number 2 in the Hexameron. And the evening and the morning were one day, which is a quote from Genesis uh, 1.5, both in the Septuagint and in the Hebrew Old Testament. Why does Scripture say one day, not the first day? Before speaking to us of the second, the third, and the fourth days, would it not have been more natural to call that one the first which began the series? If it therefore says one day, it is from a wish to determine the measure of day and night, and to combine the time that they contain. Now twenty-four hours fill up the space of one day, we mean of a day and of a night. And if, at the time of the solstices, they have not both an equal length, 
The time marked by Scripture does not the less circumscribe their duration. It is as though it said, 24 hours measure the space of a day, or that, in reality, a day is the time that the heavens starting from one point take to return there. Thus, every time that, in the revolution of the sun, evening and morning occupy the world, their periodical succession never exceeds the space of one day. Pretty clear from him. So there in the 4th century, you have somebody who is professing a day means a day, just as we know them now. Um, and then there are quotes from Martin Luther, who also had a quote talking about the world being less than 6,000 years old. Um, other things that I read indicate that John Calvin believed that the earth was less than 6,000 years old. Uh, if you go read the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith, both of them um, pretty plainly, I think, put forth that God made the world in the space of six days. Some people try to argue that that doesn't necessarily mean six calendar days, but um, I think if you go back and read the writings of that time, that was them being as clear as they could be on six 24-hour calendar days. So um, what does all of that mean? Well, I think it's indicative, not necessarily conclusive. As R.C. Sproul said, I believe in Chosen by God, we don't do theology by counting noses. Uh, the fact that I can raise up some big names on my side or other people could raise up big names on theirs doesn't decide the issue for us. That's why I started with Scripture. Uh, I believe Scripture decides it for us, not church history and not science. Um, but if, you've, if you hold to a young earth creationist view or if you've ever heard somebody challenge it by saying that it's a novel and new position, it really isn't. There have been people going back. I mean, Josephus was alive, uh, concurrent with some, I, I believe he was in the first century. I think he was later in the first century. So, you know, he was alive, concurrent with the apostles, and he wasn't even a Christian. He was a Jew, maybe not even a very good observant Jew at that. So um, it, it was a, a widely held position. Okay, so third and last, I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. I'm already kind of losing steam on this episode, but scientific arguments. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, this is one that I don't focus on all that much. Uh, I, I will completely agree that the larger scientific consensus these days is that young earth creationism should be kind of laughed out of the classroom, so to speak. I don't particularly care about that because I think a lot of modern science is completely atheistic. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong, but science that starts with naturalistic presuppositions is obviously going to have no room for God. So if you have somebody uh, like a Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is vehemently opposed to anything resembling God, particularly the God of the Bible, is it any wonder that he's going to argue against interpreting the facts in light of Scripture? No. So... Um, you know, I think that there's good scientific research that's going on out there. I don't want to poo-poo science in any way. I have two brothers who are doctors. I love the science of medicine. I love the science of technology. That's what I'm employed in. Uh, I'm not poo-pooing science in any way. Um, what I am downplaying is the scientific conclusions of men who, according to Romans, are trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
So I think we need to take all of their findings with a grain of salt. That said, a couple of points. One is the population of the earth. Um, unless you're an old earther who's arguing for a recent flood, which really makes very little sense to me, or a recent Adam, which also makes very little sense to me, scripturally speaking, the population of the earth seems to me like it would be a little bit of a point in favor of a young earth creationist, particularly if you look back, and I don't even remember why we were doing this, but I was looking this up with one of my one of my kids, either my son or my dad recently, but we were looking up the, the, the history of the population of the earth. And the earth hit 1 billion people. I don't remember, late 1800s, early 1900s. Wasn't that long ago. And we're up, I think we're close to 8 billion now, right? So it just keeps growing exponentially. And if you follow that curve back, it just doesn't make any sense to me that human beings go back all that much further than six to 10,000 years ago. That, that seems to fit the curve that we have of population data. Um, if you go to biology, I've heard biologists talk about the mutations that are coming into the genome, the human genome, and how as rapidly as that's occurring and we're seeing the breakdown. I mean, I, I don't know if this is purely anecdotal, but goodness, kids these days seem to have a lot worse constitutions than we used to. And maybe it's other environmental factors, but, you know, a hundred years ago, I don't think peanut allergies were much of a thing. And yet now they're rampant and deadly. Um, and so we're, we're seeing all kinds of cancers that are just exploding on the scene and, and all kinds of issues because we're having a breakdown in the human genome. And apparently if you chart them back, as some scientists are able to do, it again yields a time frame of somewhere around six to 10,000 years ago. And even unbelieving science has tried to point to uh, a universal Adam and Eve in Africa at about 200,000 years ago. Um, I think they have their timeline off, but still even unbelieving science is going, hey, we've got a common ancestor. It's not really 65 million years ago or whatever it's supposed to be. I think that may be dinosaurs. I don't know what humans are supposed to be. But anyway, um, so, you know, from the population, from the breakdown of the human genome, um, you, you go into the geological sciences and, you know, there's stuff that was believed to require lots and lots and lots of time. And then Mount St. Helens blew. And all of a sudden, in a very short time, we had these geological features created that are supposed to take hundreds of thousands or millions of years to create. Um, I've seen pictures of the rock layers that are supposed to take all of, you know, just lots and lots and lots of time to create. And yet you see fossils that are spanning across them. In fact, I think I saw one picture where a tree is going through like a hundred million years, supposedly, of rock layers. And so um, I've also heard about stuff where the rock layers are out of order and all of this to me seems best explained by a relatively recent universal worldwide flood like Genesis 6 through 9-ish described for us. Um, you know, you go to astronomy and I'll be honest, that is probably my weakest area on this. 
Um, but I did a little bit of reading into it, and there seemed to be a number of different feasible explanations for why we are seeing a universe the size that we're seeing it. Um, I saw one that was actually really neat that walked through Genesis and the creation of these things and how they would have affected the gravitational pull. And as the universe was being pulled out and expanded, what that would have done to time based on relativity and how the earth would have been in a timeless zone, even as the rest of the universe was expanding. I'm not saying that that's necessarily right. It was rather intriguing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would completely agree that the measurements that we're seeing, that the universe is 14.7 billion light years in radius, I guess it would be radius, not diameter. Um, yeah, okay, I don't deny that a at all. Um, but I've heard that there are problems with that view being that, okay, well, there, you know, it's, that's the radius, so that must be how old the universe is. And there's a problem with that because the measurable heat of the universe that we can see kind of in the empty space areas is incredibly uniform. Uh, and apparently because of the energy transfers that would have to take place in order for that uniformity to spread, that means that it would actually take a lot longer than just the 14 point whatever billion years in order to get us there. So uh, what's my point there? Well, my point there is I don't know that astronomy is necessarily the nail in the coffin for the young earth creationist. Um, you know, I know that Greg Kokel would like to say that distant starlight is a defeater for the young earth creationist viewpoint. I respectfully disagree with him. I think there are a lot of different ways that it's possible that we have both a young universe and that distant starlight. Um, I don't know why seeing a supernova where God only put the light in place and not the supernova, you know, that that being God deceiving us doesn't really hold water with me. Um, you know, maybe that's right. I don't know. I, I, I'm not highly dogmatic on this. I do have my beliefs, but, you know, we can we can agree to disagree. But that one to me just seems uh, a little bit like an overreach of an argument. OK, so uh, there you have it. That's why I'm a young earth creationist. And uh, hopefully you also got a little bit of a sense for why I care about it some. But this isn't my hobby horse. If you want a hobby horse, we should talk eschatology. But we'll save that for another show. In any case, thank you for listening. Uh, we really appreciate all of you listeners out there. I know that there's about three of you that listen regular. No, it's a little more than that. But uh, we, we appreciate all of you who take the time to listen. Uh, I don't have my notes with me, so I'm probably going to butcher this. But uh, think well, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. 